Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Sandy Corey, who's a managing director at Horizon Venture Capital. Well, which is a seed stage investor in product-driven startups. Uh, Sandy is an alumni of Stanford, where he's done his master's in management. A big thanks to Payment uh, Type from Wisma for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you, Rohit. Happy to be here. Awesome. So you know, uh, you you uh, I uh, you know uh, you work with Horizon Partners, and you know, you know you 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 went to Stanford. But what got you really interest, interested in this world of startups and venture capital? Sure, I'll try not to give you the too long-winded, boring version. But um, I kind of stumbled into tech investment banking um, after going to Stanford for an undergrad, and then I got a master's in an engineering program. But I didn't really take to coding, but I was very interested in technology. This is back 2003, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, I uh, ended up taking a job at a very small boutique investment bank in Palo Alto. I had no idea what they did. I didn't even really want to be in finance. I didn't want to work on Wall Street. That seemed pretty miserable. But this little company in Palo Alto, I knew they worked with tech companies. And so I was kind of desperate for a job. So I started out there and, and ended up um, really enjoying what I was doing, which was working with bootstrap companies, bootstrap technology companies, and, and advising them on selling and raising capital. So kind of like being a technology, uh, I should say a real estate agent for technology companies. And initially my job was very much um, kind of sales and biz dev focused. And um, it turned out that it worked out pretty well. And so I kind of embraced that. Um, and you know, kind of the first time I, I had a good bonus um, in finance, I was interested in, in spending my money in uh, investment banking. I, I, just, I should say spending my money in, uh, in investments. If you looked at me right now, you'd see I don't spend a lot of money on clothes and things like that. Um, and so I became a very active angel investor. And uh, in 2010, I started an M&A firm, uh, Horizon Partners, with my partner, Mike. And um, it took us a little while to, uh, you know, kind of find our niche. Um, but once we started uh, closing deals pretty regularly, it became a good cash flow business. And I became a very active angel investor and um, was able to invest in an early round in Palantir Technologies, I uh, invested in a seed round in, in Canva and uh, you know some other great companies over the years. Um, certainly invested in plenty that didn't work out. Sometimes you learn as much from those. Uh, and then a, a little over a year ago, um, I started Horizon VC and became a full-time venture capitalist. Uh, my my you know great partner uh, Mike Furmage, you know he runs the Horizon Partners M and A business, um, and I'm really focused day to day on, on venture capital. So. The, the short answer, I should say, is going to Stanford, I really kind of fell in love with tech entrepreneurship. Um, I, I didn't feel like I was technical enough to really start something myself. So I kind of got into you know investment banking and uh, and then angel investing. And I'm really, really uh, lucky that I've been able to, to find a niche in the industry. Got it. Got, got it. Super interesting. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you started off with uh, investment banking and, um, and you're advising bootstrap startups. You know what? What is different about bootstrap, uh, bootstrap, uh, you know, software companies, and you know what have you learned? Uh, how do they generate demand? Uh, and you know, is it difficult to you know run a run a bootstrap company? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. There are some people who kind of view this as like a religious question of you know bootstrapping versus uh, venture capital, and I, I 
try not to take that position. I think that bootstrapping can be great. I mean, you know, some amazing companies, um, uh, you know, Atlassian, Zoho, uh, so, you know, MailChimp, amazing bootstrap companies. Um, maybe they raise a little bit of money once they got a, a lot of scale. And then of course, all of the famous, you know, venture capital companies that we know of. Um, so, but I think with bootstrapped, you know, you kind of move more slowly for better or for worse. Um, and so it is harder to get to hundred million dollars in revenue faster as a bootstrap company. Um, it's, I mean, there, there's definitely some kind of selection biases where certain types of people are a little bit more likely to bootstrap certain, a little bit more, a little bit more likely to, to raise venture capital. But the funny thing is that you'll run into bootstrap founders who, who raise venture capital for their last company. And then they say, Oh, I just want to bootstrap it. And then sometimes you'll, you know, you'll run into companies that have a, have raised, you run into founders that have raised venture capital and, you know, their last company they bootstrapped and now they want to raise capital. So, you know, the grass is always uh, greener uh, on the other side. And uh, I think they're both great approaches, but I think it comes down to ultimately, um, you know, can you find a, a problem um, that, you know, customers are, uh, um, you know, worried about? Can you solve that problem? Um, so if, in terms of the technology business, I think, I think bootstrapping and, and raising capital, um, you know, have a, a lot more in common than, uh, that then uh, the differences, um, but of course there there certainly are some differences on the edges. Mm, got it, got it. Interesting. And uh, you know, you, you mentioned about angel investing. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I've been a fan of Tim Ferriss and uh, you know, um, and a few other podcasters who also started doing angel investing. And I've done a bit of angel investing, but uh, but what what have been uh, your, your lessons because you've done more than you know hundred angel investments. Um, if somebody is listening to this podcast and you just want to get into angel investing, uh, what advice you would give to them, especially in two thousand twenty three? Uh, where you know people are scared <laughs> uh, and they they don't know if you know if it's a, obviously it's a, it's a risky in, uh, investment but where should they start off with yeah well I, I i early in my career i got into angel investing and it was really because i could never get hired by a venture capital firm kind of back in like 2004 2005 and so i kind of said you know what if i ever want to get into vc i'm going to have to make money myself do some investing and then maybe i'll just you know just be an angel investor so um, look, the, the first advice that I would give back to myself when I was starting out, I think it's the same advice that you give to novice poker players. I'm not much of a poker player, but I, I think I've gotten the novice advice, which is like, you know, don't, you know, fold more hands, you know, when you're, when you're playing poker, right. You know, be careful. And so uh, looking back as an angel investor, I probably invested in like the first two things that, you know, landed on my desk. Uh, and in hindsight, I should have been a little bit pickier. Um, uh, now, Back when I was starting out, there was very little in terms of like online resources. Nowadays, there's a lot. So I, I think I would also say, so be picky, number one. And, and number two, there's so much um, to learn just from reading and going to various, you know, podcasts. And, you know, yeah. Scott Canis has a best-selling book on angel investing. Tim Ferriss has lots of podcasts and content. And so I think you can actually teach yourself a lot about angel investing just by being, uh, um, you know, hungry uh, for knowledge. Um, and then I think the, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, kind of, I'll tell you the story of my first good angel investment, which was in uh, Palantir Technologies um, in 2009. And, you know, I, I didn't really know what they were doing. I mean, this was in 2009. And honestly, Palantir couldn't even really explain what they were doing very clearly. Um, but it was definitely a, you know, a big data company before that was even a term. And, but the reason why I invested was that I had a good friend from my graduate program at Stanford, uh, Sham Sankar, and now he's the president of Palantir. And he joined Palantir in, uh, I think it was 2007 or 2006. 
And I think he was employee number 11. And he, when he joined, he just was raving about how amazing the people Palantir were. They were so smart. They're just so ambitious. And now Sham was like the smartest guy I had ever met. So this is, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, you played basketball with LeBron James and LeBron James is saying, these basketball players are so good. That's saying something. And so Sham had said, these Palantir guys are so amazing. And so a couple years later, when the, the opportunity arose for me to invest in 2009, and this was a time when the world seemed like it might be ending and banks were going out of business. And so I actually put in a, a large check for myself. Um, but I just figured these guys were like the smartest people on the planet. And uh, it was actually a pretty safe place to park some money. And, uh, and that worked out. So I guess it's like, you know, if you have one person who you think is the most amazing, smart, you know, uh, ambitious person, um, try to invest in what they're doing. Um, the last thing I would also say is that I probably did more angel investing than most would at my age. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of money in my bank account and I didn't mind putting a lot of it into angel investing, but I didn't really spend money on other things. And, and I had confidence that I could make a paycheck. So even though you might've said, oh my God, you just invested 40% of your net worth into this. I, I looked at it more of like an NPV and I kind of said, you know, I'm, I think I know how to make money. You know, I, I was in finance. Um, and so I didn't mind putting a lot of money into angel investing. And so obviously if you have like, uh, you know, kids and, and, and a mortgage, like be, don't do that, you know, be more careful. But I think for younger people who don't have a lot of financial responsibilities, like why not? I think putting, uh, putting money in angel investing um, and you know, building a diversified portfolio, I think it can be a good investment. Um, and also it's a great way to learn. And so there's nothing like having skin in the game to really learn about something. Uh, I certainly uh, learned that as well as an angel investor. Mm, got it. I, I, it helps, you know, where, where you do your studies from because, you know, one of your batchmates went to one of the but, uh, but how about Canva, you know, how did you get the opportunity to, uh, to invest there? Yeah, well, so I uh, happened to be friends with uh, a guy named Nikki Shavak, um, who was a Yahoo product manager who had a cool blog like 15 years ago. And I became friends with him in, in the Bay Area. He moved back to Sydney and he was a big fan of Y Combinator at a time when not everyone really appreciated what they were doing. Mm. And so he started um, a, a great uh, accelerator called uh, Startmate in Australia. And so through him, I kind of got into some of these Australian founder networks. Um, then he started a fund with a few people called Blackbird Ventures. And I became an LP in that fund. And um, then uh, I learned that they had invested in Canva and I heard some good things about Canva. And so I reached out and I said, hey, you think they'd take an investment from me? And um, they, you know, like, I, I am so fortunate that I had this um, relationship with Blackbird Ventures and they, um, you know, facilitated and uh, introduced me to the company. And uh, I was able to make the investment in a kind of a seed extension round before they were really making any money, but they had a product that had a little bit of traction and, you know, was was quite promising. I, I definitely didn't think it was going to be as successful as it, as it has been. You know, you like to go back in time and think you, you saw it all coming, but of course it wasn't like that, but there definitely were some really promising um, aspects uh, of the story and the founders were, were, were extremely compelling. So I was fortunate to invest and, and my goodness, what an amazing ride it's been. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think you you, uh, you you got some really big hits with Palantir and Canva and a few other startups. And uh, you know, coming to uh, Horizon VC, you know, you uh, you invest into into you know product driven startups and uh, you geography agnostic. Um, uh, you know, how do you how do you look at uh, diligence when you know if it is a startup which is say based in Oxford or say in Israel? You know, how how do you look at doing the due due diligence there? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, usually there is some, you know, there's some kind of uh, people in my network, you know, who maybe they introduced me to the company or, or you know, you, you'd like to have that type of like back channel uh, insight into founders, um, but you don't always have that. <clears throat> and so, um, it, it, you know, I mean, if you're talking about a startup that's purely at an idea stage, you know, the bar is probably a little bit higher on, um, you know, getting to know the founder and, uh, and, and you're really having conviction around the founder. And so, you know, we've done a few investments in founders that we backed before. Um, and so then if I, if I back your old company five years ago, I can invest right now, just based on an idea, uh, you know, like I, I, like, I know you, I'm not worried about you. You know, maybe you're not the person I think like, no, no, I know you from that. Um, so, so it's always nice to get to people, get to know people over time. I mean, I think there's this great expression, um, you know, the best investors want to invest in lines, not dots. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, some, some founders or aspiring founders might say, well, that's, you know, that's hard, you know, that's not fair. Um, but it's like, I think, I think what you want to do is try to create a record of, of doing the things you're say, you say you're going to do. Um, and so I think, it, you know, like, let's just say you, you know, you want to raise money from Sequoia. Um, you know, if you can say to Sequoia, like, you know, maybe you can just send a cold email to someone there. Um, but you say, Hey, I'm going to do these three things. Um, and then six months later, if you've actually done those three things, I mean, that puts you in like the top 2% of founders right there and doors will open. Um, so it's like, how can you show that you have a record of exceptional accomplishment or, or, you know, how can you show that you've gone uh, above and beyond? It's a certainly pedigree, like going to Stanford, you know, there's a, that's a credential that can help. I, I guess the assumption is that if you went to Stanford, you've done some exceptional things. Um, but I think you can, you can show that in, in, you know, many other ways, especially as a technical you know, co-founder or technical founder, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of ways to, to, you know, have an open source project, um, or, you know, have a website, you know, have a tool. Um, and so if, if, uh, if I meet a founder, you know, and I don't have a strong connection through the network, um, I will really kind of dive into understanding, you know, what they've built, um, and, and, you know, how they think about the problem that they're trying to solve. Um, because I think that, you know, the, if there's high quality insights there, you, you don't necessarily need any, any, any pedigree at all. Cause a lot of the best founders, you know, didn't have pedigree. So, yeah. um, you, know, you try to be opportunistic about assessing that. Got it. And uh, especially in, in this new environment, you know, with a, with a recession looming in, uh, should, should, you know, startups prioritize growth or profit profitability or capital efficiency? Uh, you know, what would you advise to founders? Yeah, well, um, I guess I'm, I've always been kind of a fan of capital efficiency. So okay. Canva was uh, cash flow positive at the Series A, and they've stayed cash flow positive ever since. Um, look, there are some business models where that's not possible. If you're doing something in space tech, if you're doing something, you know, in like the therapeutics, you know, in biotech, you're going to need to raise a lot of money and you can't be that efficient, but you can still try to be more efficient than, you know, than the next guy, the next company. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, but no, I, I think efficiency is, is underrated. I guess the, the, you know, the two metrics that I would, I would center on, you know, from the idea stage is, you know, can you have um, you know, a product with with a high net promoter score, uh, mm. and then can you have a product with high gross margins? Uh, if you have high gross margins and high net promoter score, you got it made. Frankly, the rest is just details. Now, that's not easy, um, but you know, if you have a product with a high net promoter score, um, yeah, that's just kind of a you know, fancy term for quantifying word of mouth. Um, and to build a product with strong word of mouth, not easy, but it, it is exceptionally viable. Now, it's tricky because a lot of founders you know, think they have a great product that people want, and maybe they have a few customers, 
But the, really the question is, you know, do you have strong word of mouth? Because if you don't have strong word of mouth, you know, your product isn't that great. It's just not, unfortunately. Now you can still scale um, with a product that's not great, but it's a lot easier to scale with a product that's great. And, and the terms like, you know, product-led growth, bottom-up, things that I, I um, you know, find really appealing, like you need to have a great product. You know, how do you do that? It's about having that net promoter score. Um, mm-hmm. And then gross margins, well, okay. You can have a high net promoter score by selling dollar bills for 90 cents. You know, mm-hmm. and, and as, as an angel investor, I invested in, in you know, this meal delivery startup. Uh, yeah. And uh, I love the meals. They were delicious. I didn't know anything about unit economics, but one day I learned that the meal I was paying $12 for cost the company $25. Oh, oh darn. Uh, and, uh, you know, I realized it was better to be a customer than an investor in a business like that. Um, and that was a business with horrendous gross margins. And so, you know, gross margins are basically, you know, what is your, you know, you get a dollar of revenue, you have a cost of goods sold. Um, now, software investing, which is my focus, you know, theoretically, software companies should have high gross margins because yeah. you're just, you know, kind of selling, you know, ones and zeros over the internet. What's the cost of that? But in practice, there are costs. And so you find uh, software companies with low gross margins or even, you know, non, non-tech companies. Um, but if you have high gross margins, um, it means you have, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of margin to work with. And so if you have an 80% gross margin, you know, for, for $1 revenue, you've got 80 cents to work with. And then if you have a high net promoter score, that means you have strong word of mouth. That means you're going to be very efficient with sales and marketing. That means that you're not going to end up having to spend through the nose on customer acquisition, which is a cost that kills lots of companies that are going to scale. So if you can have high gross margins uh, and high NPS, you're going to have a very scalable business. So back to the question of like, you know, how, you know, should you be, you know, growth versus profit? Well, I would say, you know, high gross margins, high NPS, and, uh, and then the world is your oyster. And you can decide, uh, do I want to grow a little faster or, or a little slower, raise more money, raise less? Um, you'll have lots of good options. Yeah, no, I think that's that's pretty clear in high NPS and high growth margins. And, uh, you know, especially in, during these times, you know, how long a runaway is sufficient for founders to, you know, feel comfortable? You know, the law talks about 18 months or 24 months, but what do you think is, uh, is the ideal runaway for founders now? Yeah, well, this is one of those questions where you'll see advice on Twitter that is you know, broadcasting, and it's never helpful to have a one-size-fits-all uh, okay. advice. You know, we, you know, we have an investment in a company that had a very low runway um, for a while, um, but then they, you know, they raised a significant round, and now they have, I don't know, 36 months or something like that. Um, and so companies can uh, get by with very low runway. Um, you, know, you generally want to be quite efficient um, and, and, and you know, stretch that out. Um, I think, you know, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, you want to have at least 18 months, at least 24 months. Sometimes you'll hear people saying they need 36 months. Um, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, if you're, if you're raising a round and that means you have the luxury of kind of saying, hey, you want to raise a little more, a little less. If you're raising a round, you want to end up with at least 24 months runway. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of detail on that. So you have to be thoughtful about your um, your, your projections in terms of, you know, how you're going to ramp up expenses, how you're going to, you know, what do you expect from revenue? And so having kind of a cautious approach to the forecast and having 24 months, um, I, you know, it's also, I think, good advice, you know, if you have raised around, um, you know, once you get to 12 months runway, it's good to try to raise money. Sometimes you can't, um, but you, you do get a dynamic where with low runway, it can be hard to, uh, to raise money. Now, I would say that if you're a company that's 
never had much runway, then there's probably a little bit more flexibility. Like it's not going to be held against you. If you're a company that had 36 months runway, you know, 33 months ago, and now you have three months runway, eh, you're really in trouble. And so you should have raised money at, you know, earlier, maybe at 12 months. If you're a company that's been kind of, you know, scrapping by and never had more than four or five months runway, and now you have three months runway, it's like, you're, you're probably not going to get judged quite as harshly. Mm, mm, got it. And, um, can, uh, how should CEOs be changing their, their marketing budgets? You know, I think the first thing which the CEOs do is they, they cut down the marketing budget, but what, what is your view on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's also one that varies a lot, you know, for, for stage and for business model. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, for, for big companies, you know, I think Mark Benioff is, is you know, like uh, cutting his marketing budget. Apparently, you know, at Salesforce in 2009 in the financial crisis, cut marketing significantly uh, after that, uh, you know, Benioff, the amazing founder said, you know, I wish I hadn't cut marketing so much um, in that time. And then now they're cutting marketing again. So, uh, but you know, Hey, that, that's a big company and it, it, it's pretty complex. I, I'm really more focused on very early stage um, and, you know, where you're, you know, half a million in revenue, maybe less um, maybe you've got, you know, five, 10 million in revenue. Um, and so ideally you're not spending that much on marketing in the first place. You know, ideally yeah. you have a product, that's so good that users are telling their friends. And so um, you've got strong word of mouth. And so if, if that's the case, I probably wouldn't, you know, cut marketing very much. Um, you know, marketing, as you would know, is kind of, you know, famously hard to measure. Um, but uh, I would be cautious about just, you know, putting that in the chopping block uh, immediately. Got it. And, you know, I've been, you know, part of sales, uh, business development and, and the revenue team, but how do, how do sales targets uh, need to be amended in the, in the, in the face of changing buying patterns? Uh, do you think uh, because of how, how difficult the, the market is right now, uh, do we need to make some amends on the sales targets for sales leaders? Yeah. I mean, I think that's also pretty, um, you know, it's going to be pretty um, dependent on your particular, um, you know, kind of industry context and company context. But I think generally a lot of companies are reducing their, their sales targets. Um, I mean, I think it depends on, on your target market. You know, there's some markets that are healthier than others. You know, if you're mostly selling to other startups, um, yeah. and boy, that was a great market, you know, in the past right now, that's probably a tough market. Um, I think if you're selling to, you know, retailers, retailers are doing pretty good. If you're selling to banks in the U S right now, banks are, are actually doing pretty good. Um, so maybe that, you know, maybe you don't need to change. It also depends on your hiring, right? I mean, if you're, if you're hiring a bunch of salespeople, um, well, I think you should only be hiring them if you can expect them to hit quota. Um, yeah. so maybe you're just dialing down your, your, um, your hiring plans, um, uh, in which case it's, it's natural to, to reduce your sales targets. Got it. And, uh, you know, especially for, for those founders who, uh, were not able to raise funding, um, uh, and they might need to look at layoffs, what advice would you give to them? Uh, on how to do the layoffs and, you know, how much is the right amount to do? I mean, you've had founders who've, you know, uh, cut jobs and tranches, but uh, should, should, should it happen in one go or should, should, should it happen in tranches? What, what is, uh, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, this is one of these, one of these topics that you hear, uh, you know, the, the same thing, which is just, you know, do all the layoffs at once, be aggressive, but it rarely happens that way. And so clearly there's some founder psychology that gets in the way of, of, of doing the layoffs, um, you know, in, in following that best practice. And so it's a really, uh, you know, I, I, you know, 
running a company is hard. Doing layoffs is really hard. I mean, I've let people go. It's really hard. Um, I've never had to like do a big layoff. I can only imagine how stressful that would be. So it's this kind of, I mean, it's, it's, you know, tragic of course um, in many ways, but I also find the psychology fascinating because it is this, this pattern where founders don't do the most aggressive version, which just tends to be the right version of the layoffs. Um, and so it's, it's probably a, you know, kind of a, a psychological question as much as anything. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's clear that the best practice is to be more aggressive. And then the kind of irony is that often people who get let go, uh, you know, it, it's like, if I'm going to get let go, make it happen sooner rather than later, you know, mm-hmm. um, like that's, that's the worst, you know, to be, to, to, you know, you, okay, you dodge one round of layoffs, but you're, you're nervous and you're worried. And then six months later you get let go. I mean, no one likes to get let go, but it would have been better off if that just happened in the first, um, yeah, the mm-hmm. first time around. But, uh, but the psychology there is really tough, and so I, I appreciate that for founders, and of course for people who are getting let let go, um, it, it is a really difficult thing to manage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, and what kind of scenario planning should should founders be creating right now? If they're not able to raise the next round of funding, or you know, should they look at a like an acquisition or exit? Yeah, I mean, it's a time to, where you have to be, uh, you know, very careful. Um, and, you know, it, it's this almost unfair thing to ask of, of founders because, you know, to be a founder, to start a company, you kind of have to have like an irrational level of optimism, an irrational level of, of belief, right? I mean, it's not, you know, the, the textbook advice is that, you know, markets are very efficient. You know, how are you going to create this amazingly profitable company out of, out of you know, out of nothing? Um, so you need to have this amazing optimism and energy to start the company. Um, but then there are these moments, um, perhaps like, like this one where it's really hard because you have to kind of recalibrate your, your psychology. Um, and I mean, I think, I think the best founders can do that, but it really is a a tall order. I think it's great to try to get advice from, from, you know, kind of trusted friends and advisors, um, because I think right now, yeah, you have to be very, um, very wary, um, very, very realistic, uh, it's just, I think it's just very tempting to kind of tell yourself things that aren't true and, and give yourself, you know, kind of a, uh, an excuse to, um, to not confront like the really hard truth, which is that for a lot of startups, um, it's going to be really challenging for them and they need to be um, scenario planning for, uh, for the worst, frankly. Got it. And um, uh, I, I well, uh, want, want to talk about, you know, what, what is the, biggest mistakes investors make when they look at and when they analyze competition uh, and uh, you know uh, and uh, may, and maybe the second part to be would be what big mis- what, what is the biggest mistake founders make when they're presenting the the competitive landscape so yeah i think the um the biggest mistake investors make in investing in the well, I think it's probably exaggerating the risk of competition. It's not to say that competition isn't very important, but the more important thing is can this early stage startup, you know, can they make um, you know an amazing product and can they build an amazing team? And you know, that then unfortunately the chances are that's not going to happen. Um, and so I guess you could say you know you could look at every failed startup and you could probably point to competitors. Um, but I think the, the the interesting question there is like, where's the agency? And I think that founders in most markets do have agency. Now I focus on B2B software. I would argue that that's the market with the most agency. I think some markets like social networking, there's probably more randomness and more noise. 
Um, so uh, I think that, yeah, you want to look at the competition, um, but I think that the, you know, because sometimes you have markets where there's multiple winners. I mean, sure, Salesforce won CRM, but there's been a lot of other great companies, um, you know, Pipedrive, um, you know, there's been a lot of other, you know, HubSpot, a lot of other great, uh, you know, companies uh, in that market. And so I, I guess I'm a little bit more focused on, on founders and can they, you know, build a product that is uh, kind of, you know, exceptionally compelling for customers and build an amazing team. For founders, I think the biggest the biggest mistake with competition is 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 like not giving it enough um, credit. And and here's what I mean: it it's that you know I've seen this happen a lot at an early stage. Let's just say you've got you know your seed funded company, you've got 100 customers or 10 customers, and you look at some found, some competitor that's maybe been funded, and they're doing something very differently than you, and you think it must be a bunch of morons. <laughs> We're doing it the right way. Um, and what I found, and it's tempting to do that. And I, I've certainly said that to myself in competitive context, right? But I think the better, um, the better approach is to think, you know, is there something that they know uh, that I don't know? Um, now, I don't think you should be obsessing about the competition all the time. Jeff Bezos has a famous quote, uh, you, know, you know, they asked him about the competition. He's like, ah, I don't care about the competition. I just focus on my customers and what they want. And that makes sense. Now, if you're Jeff Bezos, and when he made that claim, basically every single person was his customer. So there was no risk that there was something going on that he didn't know. Now, if you're a SaaS company, it's a little different because there might be another market segment you don't know about where something's going on that you, you don't know about. So I do think that the, the right approach for founders is, is not to obsess about competitors, but when, they, when you think about the competitor and how it's doing something differently, think about why might they be doing that? It's probably not because they're, they're idiots. It's probably because they know something. And so is there something that you can kind of discern that might inform your position? Maybe if you know everything that the competitor knows, maybe you're going to do things exactly the same. But the question is, um, you know, are you open-minded about maybe there's some something to, to be learned there? Mm, got it, got it. And, uh, you know, I, I went to the B-School and how to analyze TAM, but, uh, you know, what big mistakes, you know, founders make when they're presenting TAM and how, how, how should they break it down? So I think I, you know, I, I, I like to make the comment that, you know, um, bootstrapping versus raising capital, sometimes it's like this religious, you know, feud, and I try not to get in the middle. Maybe I do tend to get a little religious about TAM, because I, I, I'm not a big fan of TAM. Um, oh. Now, I, in particular, for, for software businesses. And so if you're talking about a static market, you know, if you're selling, you know, t-shirts, um, you know, in, in Australia, you know, that market is probably pretty static. But the magic of, of software, especially on the internet, is that you can create markets out of thin air. And I've invested in multiple companies that when they started out, it was like, that's a tiny market. Um, but I mean, so, and so Canva. So when Canva started out, you know, the market for online design tools was, was very small. Um, and, and the market was, and it was, the market was, was, you know, basically dominated by Photoshop. And it was basically, um, you know, professional designers, graphic designers would use Photoshop. That was the market. And so if you're Canva, and you want to go into that market, well, you're going to have to beat Photoshop. Good luck with that. Well, Canva had a, a radical and disruptive and brilliant approach, which was saying, hey, you know, 0.1% of people are graphic designers and they use Photoshop. But what about the other 99.9% .9 of people? They should be designers too. People like me. I mean, look at me. I'm not a designer. Can you make a tool that's so easy that anyone can become a designer? And they did that. And so I would say they've, they've dramatically expanded the market for online, uh, online design software. And I, I would also say this really ties to just the notion of like disruptive innovation. So you know, I'm not a big fan of, of most business books, but one of the classics is Innovator's Dilemma um, and this kind of, um, you know, this ontology of, of innovation from Clayton Christensen. Um, and so if you are truly disruptive, 
um, you know, you often have a, a, a product that starts out looking like a toy. And, and what's the market for toys? It's, it's not big. Um, but if you're successful, you know, you will be dramatically expanding the market. So I, I personally care less about the TAM. Um, I care about, you know, do you have an ambitious vision? Can you make great software? Incredibly hard to do that. But I think if you can do that, um, you're going to be able to find a huge market opportunity. And I would say the, the great, especially the great bottom-up software companies and product-led software companies, um, they don't lack for market uh, size. You know, they are, they're able to continuously either expand a, a market or, or go into adjacent markets um, by, uh, by merit of their exceptional uh, product development uh, expertise. Got it, got it interesting. And, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah, well, so, you know, I just had a Substack post about uh, about my three favorite, um, you know, non-business books that I think are great business books. Right. And one of them um, is a book called Feeling Good. Um, and it would never make the shelf of, you know, business books at your local you know, bookstore. Um, Feeling Good is a book about uh, cogni cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so it is a, it's very much kind of written for, for people who are not experts in psychology, um, but it's kind of like a self-help book, um, for, um, you know, for mental health. And I, you know, ran into it maybe 20 years ago and found, uh, the book exceptionally helpful. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, we tend to use should statements, you know, you think I should do this, I should do that. And so just one example is, you know, thinking about those should statements and, and reframing them, you know, like who's, who's telling you, you should, you know, you are actually in control. I'm in control of what I'm doing. I might say, you know, I, you know, I should do the dishes. Um, maybe I'll say it would be nice if I would do the dishes, um, but I can choose that. Um, and sometimes it's like, I got to do some things that I don't necessarily want to do, but I want to do that. So I'll do that. Um, so I found that, that uh, this particular example on, on ending the, the tyranny of the shoulds um, really helped me with uh, procrastination, but I, I'm a big fan of feeling good and found that, uh, you know, for a lot of people, I think it can help with, with, you know, the, 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 you know, serious challenges of, uh, of mental health that we all, um, tend to run into, uh, from time to time. Got it. Absolutely. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes and, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started, uh, building horizon venture capital, what is one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently? Well, so the venture fund is pretty new. Um, it's it's maybe you know maybe you know sixteen months old, um, and so what would I have done differently? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's it's probably too early to say that. I will say that the the interesting thing is that we were very fortunate to raise most of the fund in December uh, of 2021 and January of 2022. So we had very good timing. Um, back then, the markets were still looking very good. And then um, we made our first few investments um, in, you know, kind of February, you know, that kind of Q1 of 2022. And that was still a time when valuations were, were relatively high. Um, that was where the market was. But I guess if I could go back and tell myself, hey, you know, market valuations are about to go way down, um, you know, be extra disciplined about valuation. Um, that probably would have been a, a, a you know good piece of advice. But our fund, um, you know, is is maybe twenty percent deployed. So we have, um, you know, as they say, lots of dry powder to invest um, in this market condition. Of course, who knows? Maybe maybe the market will get frothy again. Maybe it'll get worse. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. But that would be the advice: is be be disciplined, um, just given that the market was about to uh, to deflate pretty significantly. Got it. Got interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? 
Yeah. Well, I'm kind of boring, but I, I mean, I love Google search. I mean, I can't believe I pay $0 for Google search. Like don't tell anyone at Google I would pay, but I would pay a lot. And while, you know, there's a lot of buzz these days about, you know, being in the, the chat, um, uh, you know, AI driven chat, I mean, very, very interesting there. Like I wouldn't bet against Google um, just given, you know, the, the power of like a, a habit and I'm so habitual on Google, but I use Google search for everything. And I'm always trying to come up with longer keyword searches um, and just, you know, being good at, at really specific searches on Google, I've found to, to be, um, you know, a, a, a very nice uh, tool in my tool chest. Correct. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Tani, what is the best way people can reach out to you uh, and know more about Horizon Venture Capital? Sure. Well, uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, of course, my email address is, uh, is Sandy at Horizon VC. And I'm always, uh, you know, on top of my email. Um, so really, those are those are the best ways. And I think, you know, I get a lot of inbounds, um, but a big percentage of them are totally unpersonalized. And in my career, I mean, I've written thousands and thousands of cold emails. Um, yeah. I always personalize them. And so I would just say if anyone like actually wants to talk to me, just, you know, put in just a tiny little bit of, of, of thought uh, to say that, you know, who you're talking to. Uh, yeah. And if you do that, I'm, I'm, you know, 99% likely to, uh, to respond. No, absolutely. Um, we'll put that in the show notes, Sandy. Thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. Uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Well, thank you, Rohit. It's really been a pleasure. So thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.